Welcome to the 332nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk with Cecilia Tamori about maternal and children's health in the midst of the pandemic. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. We're scheduling COVID calls at this point out into October, and there are slots available. If you'd like to come on and talk about current research, please do let us know. As of today, September 1st, 2021, there are 4,522,230 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I'm going to continue raising different COVID measures that I'd like to know about in addition to the death totals. And I've been asking guests to suggest ideas. And my guest today, Cecilia Tamori, has done so. So let me read a couple of COVID measures that she suggests. She'd like to know about the number of people with long COVID, children who develop long COVID, and numbers of mothers and infants separated during the pandemic. Also, infants not breastfed or not exclusively breastfed due to separation or lack of skilled support. So these would all be measures that would help us understand this pandemic. Thanks to Cecilia for that information, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment when I bring her out for the discussion. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The title is Tributes for Nurses and Midwives Who've Died in Pandemic. This appeared the 20th of April, 2020, by Rebecca Gilroy in Nursing Times. I'll put up a link to this after the discussion so you can see there are 10 brief obituaries listed in this news piece, and then uh, I'll read five of them today and five tomorrow. Patrick McManus, 60, was a nurse for more than 40 years and died on the 19th of April, 2020, at Royal Stoke University Hospital. Originally from Ireland, Mr. McManus was described as an extremely well-liked member of the nursing team at Stafford's County Hospital, part of University Hospitals of North Midlands NHS Trust. Tracy Bullock, the trust's chief executive, said he was a lovable character and brought kindness and compassion to all his patients, which was acknowledged by the number of compliments and thank you messages he received. He was an exceptional leader and took staff and students under his wing. West Midlands branch of the Royal College of Nursing paid tribute on social media, writing, we're so sad to hear that nurse Patrick McManus has died and we extend our deepest sympathies on behalf of the RCN to his family, friends, and colleagues. Rest in peace, Patrick, and thank you for dedicating so much of your life to caring for others. Brenda Clark, 66, was a midwife at Royal Albert Infirmary in Wigan, at Ridington, Wigan and Lee NHS Foundation Trust. She had 30 years experience in maternity care and will be sadly missed by colleagues. 
The press confirmed that Ms. Clark had tested positive for COVID-19 and had underlying health conditions. She died on the 17th of April, 2020. Trust posted its condolences on social media, announcing its great sadness about the loss of a valued member of their family. Linda Clark worked in our maternity service for 30 years, bringing many new lives into our borough and will be greatly missed by so many. Our thoughts and sympathies are with her family. Brian Mfula, a lecturer in mental health nursing at Swansea University, died on the 17th of April, 2020. His students described him as having the biggest heart and passion for nursing. Professor Siri Phillips, head of the College of Human and Health Sciences at the university said, students have described Brian as an inspiring teacher and role model who taught from the heart and had a passion for mental health and nursing. Colleagues from across the college have made reference to his generous spirit, his warm personality, and his highly infectious laugh, all of which made others feel good simply by being in his presence. His colleagues have also described him as a lovely man who will be sorely missed by themselves and his students. Mr. Mufula leaves behind his wife, Mercy, and children, Kato, Nkweto, Thabo, and Thandwe. Gladys Mujajati, 46, was a community mental health nurse at Derbyshire Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust. The trust confirmed that Ms. Mujajati had an underlying health condition and had stepped back from frontline duties in recent weeks. She contracted COVID-19 before dying in the hospital. Gifti Majid, chief executive at Derbyshire Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust, said staff were devastated to lose a much-loved team member. She said, Gladys had a big heart, and colleagues have talked about how she always had a smile on her face. She was known to be a warm and caring individual, always looking out for her patients and colleagues, showing true compassion and empathy. It is clear that in Gladys, we have lost a fantastic nurse, colleague, and friend. Michael Alu, 53, was a staff nurse at Homerton University Hospital, where he had worked since 2007. He was described as a key member of an acute care unit in East London. Homerton Chief Executive Tracy Fletcher said, Michael was a vibrant, larger-than-life character on our acute care unit and was well-known and very well-liked throughout the hospital. He will be greatly missed by all his colleagues, both in the ACU and the wider Homerton hospital community. Our thoughts and condolences are with his family at this sad time. Obituaries of nurses and healthcare providers from the UK in the spring of 2020. Okay, let's turn to the conversation for today, and I'd like to introduce my guest to you, Cecilia Tamori. Cecilia Tamori is Associate Professor and Director of the Global Public Health and Community Health Program at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, with a joint appointment at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's a Hungarian-American anthropologist and public health scholar whose work addresses the structural and sociocultural drivers that shape patterns of health and illness. Dr. Tamori has collaborated with colleagues at Johns Hopkins and beyond on breastfeeding, infant sleep, and infectious disease prevention. She's authored three books on breastfeeding and reproduction and numerous publications on a range of public health issues, including the COVID-19 pandemic, which we will talk about certainly today. Cecilia Tamori, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Thanks so much for having me. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just finding out where you're calling from and what the situation looks like there today in terms of the pandemic. 
Yeah, so I'm calling from Baltimore, Maryland, on the east coast of the U.S. for international uh, audience that you have. And um, I mean, the situation is is uh, not great. Uh, you know, if we look at the entire United States right now on the CDC data tracker, you'll see that the entire country is lit up with high uh, transmission. You know, we've turned towards all the, the reds that they have indicated. So we no longer really see distinctions, you know, on that map anymore. So comparatively, you know, to some of the real crisis areas, we're not at that particular level here. But there are, of course, concerns about rising cases and, uh, you know, what's going to happen as the pandemic progresses, especially as the fall um, colder weather comes in and more people move indoors for larger gatherings. So, you know, I think we're sort of at that stage where um, depending on who you are and how much you know about the situation, you might have very different perspectives um, on, on what's going on, which I think is fairly characteristic of the United States in general. Absolutely. Um, what about the school situation there in, in Baltimore? Have they made some hard decisions yet about how to proceed? Yes, I think that that's hap that kind of conversation, you know, is happening all around the country. Um, I think there is generally a desire for returning to, you know, normal, whatever that might mean. And so, you know, most children are back to school already. Um, and different counties, different school districts have taken different approaches to the level of measures that they're implementing. So there are efforts certainly to implement some measures, you know, um, masking, for example, and there has been efforts to upgrade, you know, the ventilation system. But, you know, we still have issues around capacity, the, you know, the quality of masks, um, the whether we have adequate monitoring and, and of course, you know, high community transmission. So I think in general, we are um, we're going to be struggling with some of those issues in the coming weeks. It, they just got started, most of the students. So um, we will have more on that, you know, I think in the coming weeks. But, you know, I think me, along with some other scholars, we can talk about that later. We, we've been very concerned about the, the level of attention or lack thereof to the safety of kids overall. So I'd, I'd like to ask you also, thank you for that update, and, and just ask you also a question I've been asking folks in the last couple of months about memories of this time, uh, not that it's past us, but I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a strong memory or association of, of this COVID period. Sure. I mean, you know, there's, of course, more than one, but I think, you know, in terms of where I get kind of directly pulled in um, was last spring when we along with colleagues of course you know and frontline healthcare workers were looking at some of the guidance around maternal child health policies in the pandemic and there was this sense of oh okay we know what the guidance is in china and uh we knew that mothers and infants were being separated. We knew that they were not being allowed to breastfeed. And I think everyone was sort of dreading what was happening next, you know, based on what we already knew about how um, our public health agencies tend to respond. And I remember, you know, at first when the recommendations came out, 
from the CDC where they said they use this language that was like, we, you know, you, we want you to consider separation of mothers and infants. And, you know, my messages and my phone lit up immediately after that. So I think that that was a, that's a pretty strong memory because, you know, I, I was, you know, watching certainly from, you know, from a public health perspective, what was happening. And I was very, you know, increasingly alarmed, but I think it was at that particular moment that I thought, okay, what is going to be happening and what are we going to do about it? And, and who is going to speak up about what's going on here? Um, you know, and, and feeling the, the responsibility to start doing something. That's a, that is a concrete image of something being announced by CDC, particularly in your field, yeah. something that's announced by CDC and the, and the alarm bells yeah. go off. And, and so I want to ask you about that, you know, sort of pre-COVID, um, how you got into the kind of research that you do. Sure. Um, so, you know, I did not have an anthropology background in undergraduate. Uh, I was a fairly new immigrant from Hungary and didn't really understand, you know, academic disciplines, as I think, you know, is common um, among academics who don't have this kind of background. You know, I didn't understand how these disciplines were even organized. Sure. Um, and I grew up under occupation, you know, behind the Iron Curtain. So the idea of being able to critique things as a social scientist, were, that was not really on the table in Hungary before, you know, um, the 90s. And so um, I started becoming interested you know, in social science, but really didn't get there until graduate school. And, you know, I think I was sort of fishing around, you know, I had this degree in biology, and uh, I had a degree in education. And I was drawn to social science, but didn't, you know, just didn't figure it out. Um, and then finally, I, I ended up proposing something around, you know, embodiment, I don't think I fully understood what that was. Um, and around pregnancy and birth, I think partly because I was I was already interested in issues around gender and I had done some health services research uh, in an OB-GYN clinic in particular. And so um, once I got to graduate school and, and we had a four field anthropology department, so very diverse, you know, so we have sociocultural, biological, linguistic and archaeological anthropology all under one roof. Hmm. And uh I started encountering some of the work from both biological and social anthropology around um, birth and medicalization and, and all those things and um, did some preliminary field work and ended up, you know, with people talking a lot about, you know, breastfeeding, a lot about sleep. And so I think I just, I sort of followed the data um, and followed the ethnography and started that work. So I, I really, it was more the project found me, I think, hmm. than I was necessarily settled on something, you know, before I got there. And so then I, I just ended up doing more of it <laughs> over mm -hmm. time. So, you know, ended up writing, you know, um, my hmm. first book about breastfeeding and um, sleep, and then got more interested in the historical aspect of it. Um, and then, really, you know, understood more about what the conversation was like in, in around these topics and how much of it was determined uh, by conversations in public health. So I realized I needed 
more training in that area and ended up with a postdoc actually, um, which is how I ended up at Hopkins. I did a postdoc in epidemiology and did a whole bunch of different work, much beyond breastfeeding and sexual reproductive health, all sorts mm-hmm. of topics. Um, and so, you know, that training proved to be extremely helpful <laughs> when mm. it came to these kinds of things, um, because most of that work was in HIV prevention, various aspects, social, psychosocial aspects of it, um, and other topics as well. And so, you know, when it came to the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, I had sort of these pieces that I learned from different disciplines right. and could sort of bring them together to start thinking about what we needed to do. Well, thanks for telling us that, about that. And I always find those kinds of stories are probably give, I hope, a lot, a lot of um, encouragement to graduate students who wonder how people get to the point where you are with your research. And, and it's not always a, a straight line. I also appreciate your observation about the challenges of learning about what the social sciences are under authoritarianism. Um, so, uh, you know, to make that leap into anthropology uh, sounds like you had to also make the leap to Absolutely. a different environment. Yeah. Um, could you tell you a little bit about the methods that you that you bring to bear? Sure. What kind, of, um, what kind of techniques do you use? I would say pretty, I mean, at this point, pretty interdisciplinary and eclectic. And I think in the beginning, you know, when I was in graduate school, I mean, there's this whole part of, uh, you know, becoming the anthropologist and being the proper kind of anthropologist. So, you know, I was a proper sociocultural anthropologist who also happened to, you know, have a biology degree and do his other things, you know. And I think over time, I realized that, you know, maybe being a little bit eclectic and inter- interdisciplinary is actually an asset. Uh, it's not necessarily that you need to be this, you know, one kind of disciplinary person, um, which I think is is sort of where the training takes you. So um, I really ended up using everything on under the sun. So you know, I, I you know, I'm a you know properly trained ethnographer. I you know, my study was a two year ethnographic study. So I, I checked that you know box, um, and I love ethnography. I think it's wonderful. At the same time, I think um, for the work that I started doing after that, you know, it was not necessarily the most useful, partly because if you want to be doing um, work, you know, that is multi-sided or, you know, if you want to be in conversation with public health people, you really need, you know, more team-based approaches and different kinds of methods. And you don't necessarily have two years to do your beautiful ethnography. So I think, you know, in that regard, I've, you know, I've done all sorts of qualitative methods, you know, um, particularly interview-based methods. And, you know, sometimes I have to read interviews in translation because it's not, you know, if there are multiple languages involved that I don't speak. Mm. Um, So, you know, definitely ethnography, but then also interviews, focus groups, and then over time, increasingly, you know, as I became more comfortable after my postdoc, you know, more mixed methods work and having those kinds of conversations with colleagues has been really, really helpful. So, um, you know, I had a wonderful group of experts that I could draw on, you know, for, for posing particular questions, you know, and I think I really enjoy that kind of conversation of, of multidisciplinary work 
Um, and, you know, even a little bit of archival work. So I'm, I'm really, I'm pretty, I'm pretty eclectic. I do whatever it is that suits the question. This problem of ethnography and time is one that I've heard a lot about on COVID calls in, in this, you know, pandemic period. And I think about all the researchers who had projects underway and they had to suspend them um, uh, because of the health of the people they were uh, working with or their own. And then graduate students who are now like trying to ramp back up and get out in, into the field. And I know some of them. And it's um, they, when you lose momentum in a project like that and you lose trust and, and you lose the sort of cultural fixity of a place, it's incredibly challenging to get back in, into that moment. Yeah, I, I don't. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't envy anyone undertaking those kinds of projects now. And I think that the ethical piece of that is enormous. You know, I think I would be horrified, you know, if somebody decided to just, you know, do this kind of exploitive research project and potentially risk the people, people's lives, you know, that they are interacting with. I mean, that's just unacceptable, you know. Um, I think that in general, you know, in social sciences, particularly in anthropology, it would be beneficial to us to equip students with a diverse range of methods so that they can draw on them because things happen, you know, and, and they happened, you know, even before the pandemic. I mean, I had colleagues who faced extraordinary challenges. Sure. Um, so I think having a, a, an array of methods and approaches and different ways of getting at what you're looking for and being able to pivot is something that actually we should, you know, do more of for sure. So establish the landscape for us a little bit, if you will, in the areas of your research coming into COVID. What are some of the main things that we know about maternal and child health care in disaster more generally? It, it, I mean, I think one of the key issues is, and this is sort of what um, then shows up in the pandemic, it kind of gets accentuated, is how little we think about it. Right. So I think, you know, the general lack of attention, despite, you know, more recent sort of discussions of it. But in, even though we say we prize these things, you know, in, in the end of the day, in terms of how we approach things, um, you know, even before a disaster around maternal child health is not a great landscape. You know, it's a very um, the history of that, which is sort of where I started going in my my later research, um, really just you know, it sets the stage for the kind of problems that we have during disaster. So in, um, and it of course varies, you know, depending on the context you're in, but in the US and, you know, in, in many uh, sort of Western settings, heavily biomedicalized birth with lots and lots of interventions and very much this fragmentation between care that's provided for the mother and the infant. So historically, you know, there was this complete transformation where we went from, you know, communities of people, usually um, midwives taking care of people, not always, but most of the time, and certainly knowledgeable people in the community would participate in the process of caring for people who are pregnant and postpartum to this kind of dramatic fragmentation of, you know, maternal and child health and different experts being in charge of those people. And so that fragmentation really structures everything, including how we think about things in our policy response and what happens in disasters. And so remember that, you know, 
generally that group of people is not necessarily thought about <laughs> to begin with. And so when you have a disaster, um, people often overlook uh, mothers and infants and the outcomes are terrible because uh, the vulnerabilities of human infants are pretty grave. You know, they actually are dependent, you know, physiologically and evolutionarily on a caregiver. Um, and so that not thinking and the not thinking about how the two people are interconnected means that it's very easy to undermine, you know, some basic issues, including infant survival, which is a major one. And so in disasters, one of the major problems that we have is, for example, if a disaster occurs in a cultural setting where breastfeeding is the norm, then the uh, Western NGOs come in and you know, inadvertently, because they don't know, and they're coming from this very fragmented, problematic system where formula feeding has become the norm for many people, they, their idea of, you know, saving infants is to distribute formula, for example. Mm -hmm. And that actually um, ends up costing lives, especially, you know, in disaster settings, you know, where you may not have access to electricity or water, and certainly you're undermining breastfeeding, which was what was sustaining the infant to begin with. And so then you're opening the door to diarrheal illness. Mm. Um, and, and it's just a, it's a terrible situation. So that's one of the one of the areas that uh, we have an undermining, you know, people's confidence in their ability to breastfeed, rather than providing support to say, okay, you're in a disaster It's terrible. But if you keep feeding the baby, actually, you're going to be okay. That would be the other response. So that is um, something that I think a lot of my colleagues who work in, you know, humanitarian health are working to to change that kind of mindset. And the WHO has done a good job um, supporting that. But of course, locally, anything is possible. So a part of what I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the disruption or the um, transition from breastfeeding to formula feeding um, potentially has greater health impact in low income settings is is that definitely right? and i mean so i think why is that the case right so the yeah that's yeah that's a big one so so the so i think one of the challenges is you know we have to kind of think about the historical paradigm that most western researchers have which is the assumption that formula feeding is you know how it is right and so um so thinking about more the evolutionary context of you know human infant feeding um, and, you know, thinking about humans in relation to other mammals is really helpful. So these are, you know, very ancient evolutionary adaptations that aren't just about um, food, but also about infection prevention, which obviously is going to come into play in a second when we talk about the pandemic. And so that, so um, lactation and breastfeeding are the human evolutionary norm. And the formula feeding piece is a pretty recent uh, invention in the past couple of hundred years. Um, and so, and it, it's increasingly supplanted the cultural norm of breastfeeding um, in large part due to the influence of the formula industry. And so that is sort of the, the starting point. And so the health consequences are relevant for both high income and low income settings. 
but they're going to be more easily observable and more acute in settings where you have particular limitations. So obviously, um, clean water is a, a major one. You know, the ability to prepare formula safely um, at the right temperature is another. Keeping the equipment clean, those are major issues. And they have been with us, you know, really since the invention of this um, whole product and, and the way in which the, the industry really, you know, manipulates people to believe that these are great solutions or that, that, that this makes people healthier, which is actually not true. So in a high income setting, so the, the tricky thing here in the US, um, even in, in general in high income settings, so there are differences in health regardless, you know, um, even in the most ideal circumstances, simply because formula feeding is not the same as, as breastfeeding. But the differences are going to be much more um, acute in a setting like the U.S. where um, we have a profoundly unequal um, society. And so you're going to see that inequity, uh, people who are already belonging to um, communities that have been marginalized, who are going to have, you know, much greater disparities to begin with. And you have to remember that in the U.S., we don't even have, you know, access to clean water in many communities. I mean, I don't think people realize that, that we have a, a really problematic water infrastructure, um, but it's it's pretty awful. And so, you know, even just that piece is is a big one. And then if you think about, you know, the impact of various kinds of events like climate change, you know, you have situations where Again, we're in this in the same kind of situation. Like breastfeeding is going to be a, a major factor in, in enabling the child to survive and thrive. Um, and so, it, those issues, unfortunately, you know, they are they are quite relevant even here um, in the U.S. One other part of that, just so I understand, because your observation that these issues we've been discussing have not much been discussed in the history of of disaster preparedness, let's say, right. emergency planning. I, I, I wonder, I want to think with you a little bit about that. Is is that because of some assumptions about how long a disaster lasts? And, and so planning for something immediate, event-driven, quickly resolved. And so we're not going to worry too much about um, what might be a one-week or two-week disruption, So, which is, for many people, a misunderstanding of how long disaster lasts. Right? Right. That's one possibility or is it is it more of a of a gendered issue where it's just well these are just problems that you know women have and and we'll just let them sort that out we need to focus on material and trucks and debris removal and things like that and i'm really flattening and i don't mean to do a disservice to my colleagues yeah. in emergency management who've come a long way i think in this in this area but they've inherited a set of emergency plans that they now have to bring up to speed to the research so i guess i'm sort of curious to understand a little bit more deeply about this blind spot that you pointed out? I, you know, I think part of it has to do, so there's several things. I think one is, you know, that um, the history of fragmentation in responses, you know, including the medicalization of life, you know, as, as a whole, you know, as sort of different things belong to different categories, which is, you know, both medicalization and obviously an outcome of the general transformation towards capitalism that's also about fragmentation. So the two are running parallel, so I think that that's part of your answer is simply they belong in different domains. So mm -hmm. disasters occur in one domain. Mothers and children apparently occur in this other domain. 
they don't belong together. <laughs> I think, you know, clearly the lack of attention to this group of people has to do with other, you know, issues around what we value and how we don't really value moms and infants, despite the rhetoric. So I think that that piece, you know, of the lack of value of people in actual pragmatic terms, other than the rhetoric is, is another piece. Um, I think there's also the issues around um, racial ethnic inequities. So whose whose lives do we actually care about? You know, I mean, who are most affected by these kinds of emergencies? Some of them are, you know, long running, like, you know, the lack of access to clean water and running water on reservations. That's a slow, it's like all about what you're talking about. It's a slow disaster, but mm, we're not really addressing it. Why? Because of the historic inequity. So I think there's that piece too. I think all of the above. Um, and I think that there is this, you know, the other theme that, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about, which is this sort of American individualism and exceptionalism, which, which treats these things in, in, in theoretic terms. So like we, we don't have these issues because we've overcome them. Right, right? right. So we're not really um, in touch with the empirical reality of how, you know, large portions of the population live. And a lot of the people who are involved in some of these things come from very privileged backgrounds. So the people who talk about some of the things like infant feeding, you know, in the media tend to speak from an extremely privileged perspective. And they simply cannot conceptualize, you know, what it would mean to be to have their lives disrupted for a long period of time. Well, first, let me just remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking with Cecilia Tamori today about children and maternal health in the pandemic. And thank you for, for that discussion. I think it's an incredibly um, useful one. And I think it also, if there's a, I don't know, a trope that's more frequently repeated in popular culture around disaster than the sort of women and children first. Every disaster movie has a scene where defenseless women and children are shepherded into the boat first. And what you've said is that that plays out cinematically, but if you look at the reality, it's it's they're they're then pushed out of the frame and forgotten. Right, um, right, right. I, let's turn to COVID and and back to this moment where you were describing where your phone lights up and CDC introduces the idea that it may be okay for separation of ch children um, and breastfeeding mothers. And so, what do you do? I mean, you're engaged in research, but you're also engaged in outreach and, and organizations that support breastfeeding. Tell us a little bit about what those first few months were like for you. Um, it was a little bit intimidating and overwhelming. You know, um, I think I just did not expect. I, I was sort of looking to see, you know, where is our leadership? And, and you know, this may be a persistent theme, you know, <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> shouldn't we be talking about this? This is isn't this a concern? This yeah. is a major issue, you know, thinking, you know, I was looking at some of the data um, that was, you know, early and preliminary, but we were seeing this clear pattern, you know, with age. We're also seeing, you know, and I, I, I want to make sure that we emphasize this, that it's not that we didn't know that there were potentially rare but severe outcomes as well. So you're looking at that 
But then you're also looking at the larger um, age gradation. So both you're holding both of those things at, in, you know, in your mind. And I thought, okay, what is going to happen? You know, when they recommend something like this, you know, what is, how is this going to play out? And where, where are the organizations that might speak about what the impacts would be and under what circumstances would, would this really be a good idea and what could we do differently? We know, you know, I think one of the key issues in this whole story of fragmentation and medicalization is this um, pretty awful history that took place with the rise of biomedicalization, which was all about separating moms and babies. So this played out earlier in the 20th century. And one of the major outcomes of that was that, that in the United States, breastfeeding was almost completely wiped out. <laughs> and that had to do with some of these protocols that um, hospitals instituted, which was all about separating moms and infants, um, and a whole series of other things. But that was one of the key pieces of it. And then undermining breastfeeding systematically and, and not allowing moms and babies to be together so that they couldn't really actually functionally breastfeed. Um, and then enforcing that, you know, for, for millions of people who, who had no idea that that was what was going to happen to them. So we wiped out a generation of people who would have that cultural knowledge, and we're still dealing with the legacies of that now. Um, so we have, you know, decades of research on this. We knew how important proximity is. We know this, you know, again, from comparative studies around other mammals as well. And we know it for, you know, human infants and how important that closeness is and how important that closeness is for survival, <laughs> for stabilization of the physiology of the infant, um, for maternal health and for the establishment, the successful ability to establish lactation. So it's really about systems that uh, enable you to breastfeed. It's not about individuals making decisions and like figuring this out on their own. It's about what is it? What is a cultural and medical system that facilitates it? What does it do to make it easy or break it? Mm -hmm. And so as soon as you start talking about separation, you know exactly, you know, those of us who work in the field, we knew what was going to happen. It meant it's going to break that um, chain and women are going to have a really difficult time establishing breastfeeding for their infants and there's going to be lasting effects and they're not going to be given the skilled support that they need to be facilitating breastfeeding. So there were a couple of people, you know, commentaries um, that were written early on. But I didn't really see a lot of leadership step up. And so as I was talking to colleagues and, you know, frantic text messages and, you know, healthcare providers messaging me and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, we're seeing people being separated. Like everyone is being separated as a precaution, you know, um, and everyone is, is assumed now to be COVID positive. I thought, OK, well, if no one is going to say something and not we're not going to write about it. And the leadership isn't going to say, okay, this is a really problematic thing that's happening. Um, I guess I should probably do something about that. And so we, um, you know, out of those text messages and email messages, we ended up writing a paper about, you know, why these, why these processes are problematic and mm -hmm. what kind of assumptions underlie them, because I really think it kind of has to do with this cultural default defaulting back to separation when in doubt, <laughs> you know, that's sort of like our, you know, 
1950s and pre-1950s default that we keep falling back on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, trying to overcome some of these issues. So, I mean, and, and, and just so I understand the, the context completely from the CDC's perspective, to, to the extent we can recreate it, I don't know if we can, but, but as you said, everyone was assumed to be COVID positive. And so, therefore, the risk is that the mother will pass COVID to the child. Right. And, that, and that's the sort of base assumption that then resuscitates all of this, as you said, sort of 100-year-old history of a process <laughs> That was already sort of the muscle memory was there, right? Um, and but it uh, and, and were there other concerns, or that was is that documented that that's what they were worried about? Do they have evidence for that? I mean, uh, it, coming from by that point, there were two months from other countries they could have looked at what was happening in China yes. or Italy or Spain or it other places. Would have been good, um, but no, I, I think so. There were several things. There was the early guidance from China, so I think they were also drawing on that. You know, so that that. Um, default, you know, the idea of separating comes from both sort of a, a, a somewhat outdated biomedical system that migrates, you know, elsewhere. So the, those kinds of issues in Chinese maternity systems are also a problem. It's not, you know, it's not only the US, but that those assumptions were exported widely around the world. Um, and some of them stay on, they linger longer. You know, and then the other reasons for that have to do with uh, people's experience, you know, with prior pandemics. So I think that people were responding in that kind of frame. But the CDC went with that kind of individualist interpretation of mothers and infants being kind of separate versus the WHO that was very clearly saying, you know, you really need to think about what are the foundations of maternal child health, you know, and proximity at the center of it, and also, you know, human rights, like, what are the rights of birthing people? (laughs) What are the rights of the child? You know, everybody deserves support during birth. Everybody deserves support postpartum. Babies and mothers belong together. I mean, these are sort of fundamental issues in WHO guidance documents. The CDC does not always engage with those documents. Um, And so it's this very, very individualistic framework, you know, which keeps coming back. And then it was really individual hospitals that then started tweaking that, the implementation of that guidance. So the CDC actually tried to temper that a little bit and talk about shared decision-making. But then the AAP, which is the Academy of um, Pediatric, uh, the, the, the society that is in charge of pediatric medicine, they actually came down very hard and said, actually, we need to separate. And that was even later. So hmm. that actually happened later in the spring. I know, despite all, so in the meantime, the WHO says, really, like we really mean <laughs> you need wow. to keep mothers and infants together. The British uh, societies are also saying we should keep mothers and infants together. And instead, you know, we have the AAP that says, no, we're, we're just going to, we're going to go ahead and separate because we're really concerned about the potential impact of transmission on infants. Again, which I think we're all concerned, like all of us were concerned. Sure. It was a question of what would be the best way to balance those considerations and try to keep people healthy and try to keep them from transmitting the virus to 
infants. I think at that time, they were still concerned that it would also transmit through breast milk, which was not really ever a major consideration. Nobody really expected that to be the case based on the data. But um, but there was a there was actually kind of a heated call um, over the summer Hmm. in 2020, where the AAP was uh, defending their stance for separation. and they had a series of experts who were supportive of separation. And then they ended up having one of the experts that they asked to present, they actually cited our paper and said, actually, we think it's not such a great idea uh-huh. you know, to separate moms and babies. And eventually the guidance was reversed for both for the AAP and for uh, the CDC. So the paper is when separation is not the answer, breastfeeding mothers and infants affected by COVID-19. And I put the title up here. People can find it's in the journal Maternal and Child Nutrition. And it appeared the 26th of May, 2020. What you're describing, um, others have described, I think, very well as the, the shifting frontier of knowledge about COVID and what's moving very quickly. But it's not as if new information about COVID lands and it, I mean, it lands in a society that already exists, right? And so there's already these fault lines, there's already these presumptions about the right way for maternal and child health to to proceed. So I I think you've really established that quite, quite beautifully. And, and just want to come back to this because I wasn't aware of this conflict. But again, does the AAP, when they make that recommendation, do they have some hard evidence to point to that there was significant risk of transmission of COVID from mother to child in the United States by that point or other places? Or, or what was the basis for that discussion? And which is particularly relevant because then they reverse it. So then they have to right. go back and reevaluate whatever basis they were laying down in the they, first place. They really, I think at that time, they didn't really have the data. I think what they were saying, and, you know, and again, I, I don't want to uh, seem cavalier about the risks, you know, because I think that they're important to consider. So it's, it's not that what they wanted was sort of trial evidence that they did not yet have to be able to make that recommendation. So they just default to the idea that separation is safer. You know, that is their paradigm. You know, separation is safer, even though, you know, they have now, you know, in the last few decades, they have bought into the idea that actually you know, moms and babies together is the norm and that we should be advocating for breastfeeding. But the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't have a particularly great history in supporting breastfeeding besides saying those words. You know, historically, it has not been particularly great at supporting breastfeeding and they actually have um, considerable um, infant formula funding at the moment um, active, you know. Um, So I think there are some concerns about, you know, the actual material support and the knowledge of pediatricians about lactation, um, as well as, you know, other physicians who don't, you know, they don't have a lot of training um, in lactation. So th- so there is kind of a, a not so great history on that part. I do think we have strong advocates um, who have really looked at the data for why you know, the, the sort of, again, what is the human infant default and kind of question some of those cultural paradigms. But I think that um, for whatever reason, and I can't tell you, you know, what was going on in the head of those who wrote the papers around the guidance, but I, I do think that they they knew it was going to be contested 
when they put it out and they certainly received a lot of, um, there was a backlash against it, you know, and again, uh, you know, the WHO and other medical societies who had been looking at the data strongly disagreed with that kind of approach. So I think it's just sort of the, where are the priorities and what are the defaults and, and what do they consider to be more valuable in the end of the day? Um, and, you know, lactation isn't at the top of the list. So just let's bring it up to the current day then. And with the Delta variant, which has changed so many people's thinking about use of masks, I mean, a lot of public health advice that was given in the spring of this year, 2021, has now had to be reevaluated around social distance and masks and gatherings and um, uh, every other aspect of the kind of way we cope with with COVID infection because of the transmissibility and infection rates of Delta. So does that at all impact the paper you wrote or your thinking about the, the degree to which um, separation is not the answer? So I think a couple of things. One is that, you know, it never fully stopped. So once you have guidance that's not great, it's very difficult, as you can see from other kind of guidance, you know, it's difficult to reverse it fully. So even though, you know, hospitals are no longer ostensibly supposed to be separating, we still, I'm still hearing reports, you know, through messages from colleagues about justifications for separation. So that's still happening and was happening well after the reversal of these policies, unfortunately. Um, what has improved is, you know, we, we have better access to testing. So not everybody is assumed to be positive necessarily. But, you know, now we have obviously a much more complex situation than we had before. In terms of, you know, considerations, I think one of the things that hasn't changed for me and, and that has never been fully considered by the AAP or, or some of the um, considerations is that when you take an organism that's dependent on the mother, right, they're part of a dyad, we call it a dyad, then, you know, infants are not independent entities. <laughs> they can't actually survive on their own. So other people have to handle them a lot, right? And so that actually takes the, so there's other people who also are considerations in an infectious disease kind of plan, meaning that healthcare workers could be a source of transmission as well. So, you know, I think that that, that piece has never fully been thought through that, you know, there's this, you know, the number of people who may be handling that infant, the amount of staff resources that it takes to deal with infants who are elsewhere. Um, and then, of course, you know, that they, they go home together, right? They get discharged. <laughs> so they, And there's other right. people around them. So I think that the key piece there is based on what we know, and, you know, we have a lot more data, and, and the AAP now concurs that, you know, we, we can keep, you know, mothers and infants together, and that has substantial benefits. Um, and really, I shouldn't be using the language of benefits. It's the default, right? Mm -hmm. So separation has risks. But I think that the piece that's sort of difficult now is, you know, what to do in a situation where, you know, the pandemic is is raging, you know, and you're going to end up with things like um, lots and lots of transmission, lots of pregnant people who are very ill, you know, and in those kinds of cases, when somebody is on a ventilator, they may not be able to care for the infant. Right which is terrible. Um, and then we also have, you know, transmission from healthcare workers as well to 
mothers and infants. So, I mean, there's just, you know, the kind of scenarios that are happening right now are really um, terrible for for everyone and and particularly for vulnerable um, people like pregnant people and infants. So it's really not not a good not a good situation at all. What's the most recent thinking about vaccination for pregnant mothers? So this is actually one of the key areas, you know, I've been doing a lot of outreach around. So that was so I was doing the academic work and then I was also doing lectures for um, lactation organizations and then community outreach and Q&As for, you know, all the people who are lactation professionals and, you know, um, midwives, doulas for serving communities. One of the things that I think we really had um, a difficult time with is because pregnant and lactating people were not in, included in the initial clinical trials, you know, th- there was this question of like, what are we going to say to people right in the beginning? Um, and so um, for and and lumping them together, which is a mistake, you know, physiologically pregnant people are not the same as lactating people. So there was never really any um, theoretical risk that could take place with lactation at all. But again, without trial data, people felt kind of uncomfortable um, over time, you know, we also have clinical data for both of those populations. So the, the sort of recommendations could be strengthened. And thankfully, what we're seeing is excellent safety profile for pregnant people as well. But because of that delay, we have this absolute terrifying inequity. And we didn't really know the extent of the inequity until the spring when we had more data on it, which is that only a fraction, you know, like a, a quarter of pregnant people who were registered in the VAERS system, and remember, not everybody registers, so it's only a fraction of a fraction who were vaccinated during pregnancy. And that is because of this, again, the same kind of thing that we started talking about, which is completely overlooking this group of people who should have been included in the trials in the first place, right? So we could get vaccination to people who need it um, you know, and if you think about it, you know, pregnant people, like we should probably be thinking about them and lactating people who have infants who cannot be vaccinated. Like, shouldn't we be thinking about them too? Right. right. You know, so this is the result. This is the result of when you don't think about these groups of people and you don't integrate them into disaster responses, you have these profound inequities. And then, of course, within the inequity, the larger inequity, there's the inequities within that group. Like, the racial ethnic inequities in reaching particular people, which is the same, you know, across the pandemic. But the costs, you know, for pregnant people are are lethal, you know. The, so it pregnant. So the, the vaccine trials are usually not done for any kind of vaccine are usually not done on pregnant. So, um, yes, yeah, so there's, there's a gap this, in the, it's just yeah, a, a population a, that's out there that we just hope for the best. And lactation, too. Yeah, I don't understand that. So it has to do with this history, which, you know, there are some positive reasons for this, which is that, you know, people don't want to exploit vulnerable populations and pregnant people are are considered a vulnerable population. Um, And depending on the setting, lactating people too, usually. And again, they're kind of collapsed. And you know, some of that, you know, has to do with unethical research practices, right? I so, so, so we don't want unethical research done to pregnant people or lactating people. Absolutely, right? We're all on the same page. However, excluding them means yeah. that they don't have access to support. And in a pandemic, you know, that kind of makes a, an enormous difference. And we knew 
you know, by several months into the pandemic, we started seeing the data that pregnant people were were having a greater likelihood of complications, and that data have strengthened over time. So it it was absolutely stunning to see the consequences of this unfold. And, you know, I, I'm still like, I look at that number and I, I'm just livid, you know, because it means that people who could have had the opportunity to be vaccinated if they were given the information weren't. And, and some of those people are now dead. It's, you know, to me, that's inexcusable. And the concern about exploitation is that people who participate in clinical trials are paid and that pregnant mothers might be particularly vulnerable at that moment, but economically precarious, or they're not, they don't, we're not able to give full information to people in a clinical trial. And so there's some risk that's assumed. I mean, I just want to make sure it's that multiple, part of it's clear. There's multiple different ways that ethicists have looked at this, mm. but, you know, I don't think it's just about, you know, necessarily payment. It's about, you know, the particular vulnerabilities of that um, person. So, you know, if you think about um, potential harm to the pregnant person and their fetus, Right. that automatically puts people into a different kind of category. And you know that and that's sort of how often lactating people are thought about um as well. But the interesting thing about vaccines is that the only concerns that we ever had with lactation were you know live vaccines. So, you know, if there's a concern about transmission, that that's a totally different scenario. But there was, you know, since these vaccines were not live vaccines, that was never a concern. So it was never clear, you know, why pregnant and lactating people were lumped together to begin with. Um, but, you know, getting so getting messaging out to pregnant people, you know, how do they make decisions around these issues? You know, what about people who are, are breastfeeding and they're worried, you know, what's going to happen? Like, can they transmit some part of the vaccine? Mm-hmm. You know, there was not the kind of answer that we would have liked to have, which is not, there's no theoretical risk, right? Would have been really nice to have the hard evidence that actually, you know, what we anticipated, which is how this whole thing works and why breastfeeding is, you know, life-saving is that, you know, there's an antibody response, there's a strong immune response, and you are able to pass some of that protection on to the infant. (laughs) So, you know, if anything, that that's, we don't, you know, we don't know the degree of protection per se, but we do know that um, lactating people pass on protection, you know, and that can make a difference. So, you know, it, it sh- we should never have, you know, discouraged people from having it. Um, and thankfully, like I said, we have actual clinical data now on all of the above and, and a great safety profile. So if you're listening and you're pregnant or you're lactating, please get vaccinated because it can save your life. Are OBGYNs giving that advice? Yes. Yes. So that actually, um, you know, once the data kind of actually OBGYNs were really good about the vaccination piece getting out earlier, but obviously not effective from the data in terms of the level of outreach, but they did try um, and they've strengthened that recommendation over time with the growing body of research. So they have been recommending it for a long time. And the CDC made a very strong recommendation not that long ago, just a few weeks ago. Mm. So they, they actually had it on their home page and, and tried to get that message out and, and were, you know, telling providers to strongly encourage people, not just to say, you know, you can, it's great, it's out there, but like you really should consider 
getting vaccinated because of what we're seeing with the rate of complications for pregnant people in particular. So at any given time, um, this is not meant to be like a trivia question, but I'm just curious, at any given time, like how many pregnant women, how many pregnant mothers are there in America? That's a really great question that I'd have to Google. Um, <laughs> well, that, that'll be a conversation for another time. But I mean, at the but point a lot, it, a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody stop right now and think, do I know somebody who's, who's yep. pregnant? Most people it's will. It's a huge percentage of the population so who's pregnant or breastfeeding, right? That's a mother yeah. and at least one child, presuming right. most are not carrying twins. I mean, this is not some, again, from where we started this conversation, this is not some peripheral segment of the population. And so to right. assume that we don't need to do the trials or that we don't need to worry about the advice is once again, I mean, it, it speaks to a much more distressing kind of cultural blind spot around health for women and children that that is now playing itself out in this way. And I just want to point out, and there's a brilliant new um, piece in the New York Times. I know people get tired of reading about COVID, but you really should read this um, op-ed that Tara Haley, the journalist Tara mm-hmm. Haley, who writes so wonderfully about the anti-vaccination movement as a political yep. movement and as a political strategy. Um, and she has a piece that's up in the New York Times right now. And I, I hope you know her or we should find yeah, a way for you I to do. talk. I do. She's great. And um, she points out that, and I to bring this back to what you and I were just talking about, that the minute, I mean, under under ordinary conditions in the United States in the last 20 years, there would there would be an anti-vaccination discourse going on. And you might mm-hmm. even say, in a democracy, we could tolerate some of that. Maybe that's even healthy to have a wide range of views. I, I don't know. Maybe many doctors and public health uh, researchers might not agree with that. But um, but now there's a segment of our political culture that's invested in that because they're benefiting by it electorally or monetarily Absolutely. and usually both. And so what <laughs> exactly. you've just been describing is is hugely distressing because now there's an opening to drive the anti-vaccination message to pregnant mothers. And it sounds like it's happened. That's exactly what happened. So when you have an, it's an opening, right? So when you don't have information ready, you know, I mean, as you, you know, even when you do, you can see what you can do with it. Like misinformation and disinformation are, are what, what's driving, you know, the pandemic, um, in, in large parts, not all, but in, in significant ways and fertility and children have been huge tropes in the anti-vaccination movement for quite some time. They're very easy to exploit because, again, the cultural narrative is that we value these things. Again, not necessarily an empirical reality, but we like the idea of it. And so that gives people the opportunity to step right in. And I saw it, you know, obviously coming, but I honestly did not. I don't think anyone could see how bad it was going to get, how quickly it was going to get bad because we had such a huge lag of time. So we went from, you know, vaccines are coming, you know, for the general population. And then, oh, no, what about pregnant people? What about lactating people? What are we going to say to them sort of at the last minute? And then months of sort of, well, this is what we can extrapolate. I mean, it's just not good enough. You know, and so that that was exactly the the springboard for misinformation. And so I've been dealing with that since, you know, is and it's the same stuff that gets circulated. And, you know, and it's exactly like Tara describes and, and others, like Peter, Peter Hotez, you know, all the, you know, it is basically the same tropes over and over again, hitting those vulnerable points 
and twisting things around so that people fear the vaccine more than the disease. And it's, you know, the consequences are deadly. And it's, it's just, you know, it breaks my heart to watch, you know, pregnant people on, you know, on ventilators and ECMO and dying and leaving, you know, infants behind. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's horrible. I did look up for you the number, oh. number every, of every time I talk to a public health, but it's just like talking to my colleague, Esther Chernak, you ask her a question and if she can't answer it, she's working on the side to answer it. And then she well, yeah, you the feel you know, I feel like I didn't know the answer for you. So the estimated, this is on, on the CDC site, the estimated number of pregnancies dropped to 6,369,000. And I don't know uh, what year that was, but you know, that gives you a sense. I mean, so we're, we're talking about millions of people. So 12 million people, if you include a mother and a child. In that, yep. In that yep. Discussion. Yep. So it's, yeah, it's inexcusable. It's inexcusable yeah. what we've done. So there's, you know, there's there's a lot of left behind groups, as you can, you know, um, see. And I think that, you know, that was definitely the motivation for me to to think about, you know, the pandemic more broadly, too, is I was watching people being overlooked, yeah. you know, yeah. every day. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID calls in my discussion today with Cecilia Tamori. And we have one more issue I want to get to. And I've been pretty greedy with your time today. Can you spare another five minutes? Sure, absolutely. Okay. So um, you also published, um, I don't know how you're doing all this work, but um, a, a piece in eClinical Medicine titled, Your Health is in Your Hands? Question mark. And um, this piece, I just want to give one, just a, a small quote from it, a taste of it. Um, you highlight in there at the beginning, sort of the setup is CDC, current CDC director, Rochelle Walensky's phrase, your health is in your hands. Um, and the problem particularly of, of CDC messaging, which seems to address public health as something that an individual can that your health is somehow individual and that public health is somehow separate or it's not addressed what that should consist of. And you were motivated um, with colleagues to, to take that on and write about that. And so that's kind of been a theme running through everything we've been talking about today. But what, why did you want to write this op-ed? And, and maybe you could do a better job of summarizing it than, than I can. But it appears in The Lancet. Um, and this is one of their many, many publications. And I'm going to put the link up here. Tell us about this article. So um, not unlike, you know, when my phone lit up last spring, I think as we were watching, you know, I think many of us in uh, working in this area, especially in health equity, um, we were watching sort of a shift in dynamics. I think we were all very hopeful when, when things started getting, uh, you know, more proper attention from the new administration. And, and, you know, we were no longer sort of saying, okay, we should just you know, let everybody become infected. So I thought that was, you know, wonderful. And we, you know, we saw this beautiful vaccination uh, initiative, but then we started getting concerns because of the way in which the rollout was occurring and the sort of uh, what, what I think many of us perceived as not enough attention to communities who are particularly uh, marginalized, overlooked, who may not have access, you know, to transportation or, you know, who may have disabilities. I mean, people who really needed the vaccine brought to them. Um, you know, so I think, you know, that was a concern. And then, you know, started hearing more and more emphasis on sort of individuals over time. And I think that shift took place sometime in the spring. 
And then as the vaccination effort was, you know, reaching its peak, and still, you know, we barely got approval for the adolescent group. So, you know, had no time to really, uh, you know, vaccinate folks. All of a sudden, you know, we have this sort of celebratory tone, a new celebratory tone. And then, you know, um, the idea that uh, people who are vaccinated can remove their masks. And I remember seeing that announcement and just my heart kind of like skipping a beat and thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, this is going to unleash, you know, this cascade of events where is going to be taken like a, a green light, you know, like for you know, not just the people who are vaccinated, in fact, but for everything else. And I mean, it started playing out exactly like that. And so as I, you know, as I saw it, I started reaching out to colleagues. And, you know, I think it was one of those messages, you know, I don't know, midnight or something. And I said, mm-hmm. I just, we have to say something about this, because it's really not, this is not okay. And we need to we need to write about it. And, you know, would you be interested in in working together? And, you know, um, all these amazing co-authors, you know, and I I just want to, you know, make sure we emphasize that all of this is these are all team efforts. You know, um, it was a privilege to be able to lead that piece. But I mean, everybody on that team is incredible. Um, And, you know, I tried to reach out to a diverse group of people working in different kinds of pieces, you know, with different kinds of expertise. And I was particularly interested in, you know, centering health equity and human rights, which I felt like was a completely lacking, you know, discussion altogether and and ideas about, you know, history as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's how that team came together. And then, you know, we worked really hard to try to um, sum up, you know, thousands of words of you know, things that we had to say into this very tiny little commentary, but that, you know, that was sort of the evolution of the piece. And really we wanted to bring back the conversation. Like we, we felt like we really needed a reset, you know, that this was, this was all together going in the wrong direction, that this is contradictory to what we do or what we at least aspire to in public health. And that, you know, we do actually have guidance about what we should be doing, you know, and human rights are a foundation to that. So we needed to bring back those kinds of conversations and prioritize, you know, collective responsibility, not individual responsibility, and health equity and human rights. And we try to make our case, um, you know, through the commentary. I just want to give one more quote from the piece because it's such a, a statement on our times to you write securing public health does not merely reflect the health of many individual persons, rather a collective public good that is greater than the sum of its parts. Public health actions protect and promote the health of entire populations through multi-sectoral interventions to address underlying determinants of health. And you know, I remember that that time as one where the CDC advice came out and then President Biden said by July 4th, we'll all be in the backyard enjoying a cookout. And, you know, that had incredible cultural resonance with people because they've been locked up a long time and they missed a family and they missed doing those kind of mundane things that we all used to complain about. Like, I don't want to go see my family. And then it's like, we got to do this, like becomes so important. And, and what strikes me here as I read the piece, and it's really, it's 
it's really provocative because it's speaking about public health, but also just about where we are as a country in the United States and not only in the United States right now, is that there's so much rhetoric around individual freedom in this moment. I need to be able to decide for myself, will I wear a mask? Will I be vaccinated? But almost every one of those cases, when you let people talk long enough, they're like, I want to do this individual thing because I then want my kid to go back to a public school or I want to go to a public park and have a barbecue, or I want to gather with a big group. So the individualism just, it slips through your, people don't want to do these individual decisions so that they can go stand alone on a mountaintop and be healthy or unwell. They want to do it so that they can re-engage in the commons. But that's, you don't get that option. I'm, I'm ranting now, but I was so motivated by the way you framed it in, in the piece. And it sounds like that's, that's the kind of logic that you're trying to demonstrate, but it's so hard right now. I think you're absolutely right. I think this also shows, you know, that recurrent theme, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what is the connector between the different pieces of work that I've been doing? And I think this is it, you know, like it's about cultural ideologies are ideologies. They're, they're tropes, you know, they're kind of the recurrent themes that get pulled. It doesn't mean that, that, that life is aligned with them. You know, it means that certain ideas become dominant. And then, you know, powerful interests make them further dominant, you know, so I think that is sort of the key issue is that in reality, you know, individualism is, you know, it's always been a, a fairy tale, you know, because our lives are interconnected, they're social, and we depend on one another for survival. <laughs> you know, we are a yeah. social species through and through. Everything is about the social so the idea of, you know, the idea of individualism doesn't reckon with the actual reality on the ground, but it is a strong cultural trope and a dominant one that keeps getting reinforced, you know, by, by people in power. And unfortunately, you know, the, the, the other sort of ugly side of this is a, the, the moral culpability. So we also then assign blame. So if you don't do it right, whatever that is, then it's your fault. So there's that blaming piece of individualism that I think is really important. And then also that, you know, we, that we can hide our collective responsibility. We hide and erase the um, actual experiences of people and, and real people's lives in that process. So if it's about individual responsibility, we do not have a collective responsibility as a society or as a government, as a state for ensuring that people are safe. What does that mean? You know, what, whose lives then get valued and whose lives become expendable? And I think that was a, a core um, piece in our, our commentary that we really wanted to bring forward is that, you know, in these discussions and how that narrative gets framed, there is this underside, you know, this undercurrent of erasing needless suffering and death that's unfolding at the moment. And I think that's really where we are in the pandemic is this sort of cognitive dissonance between the rhetoric of, you know, particularly elites who keep saying that we're like emerging from the pandemic, we're post-pandemic and everything is great. People who have protection, people who, you know, are vaccinated and they're really wealthy and, and they can work from home and, and, you know, they're doing their thing. And then, you know, people who are continuing to die 
and people who are being overlooked, um, you know, people who have children under 12 right now um, in unsafe educational settings and, and childcare settings. I mean, you know, whose experiences are being highlighted and whose experiences are being sort of erased in the narrative. I think that was something that we really wanted to draw attention to all of us. And we, you know, we still talk about it. Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me tomorrow for my discussion with Ashley Shu, and we'll be talking about COVID and disability justice and disability rights. And I want to thank my guest, Cecilia Tamori. Um, and I have kept you from your dinner substantially here, but it was a great conversation in which I learned a tremendous amount. And thanks for all the work you're doing um, in your research, but also in, in educating the rest of us and keep it up. Thank you so much. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at six o'clock.